I have a PhD in jealousy. I will say that. Or really, when I started my real practice around 2001, we got hooked up with this group called the Welcome Consensus. So Carol and I walked in and they were hardcore player. There was like violence. There was like domination. And the guy in charge, this guy RJ, was a straight lace killer. And if he saw any weakness in with you, he put his fingers in there and he pried it and poked and touched it. And Carol fell in love with him. And I was this newbie off the boat with his wife, who he thought was better than, who had chauvinistic, misogynistic viewpoints about. I thought I was the man, I was blah, 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 to have all these things confronted by her falling. And so like jealousy, burning, dying, middle of the night, walking for five hours, you know, in the San Francisco fog on the great highway, you know, suicidal thoughts, you know, the bus coming towards me, my scooter and doing the math of what it would take to veer my scooter in front of that bus to get to that bus to end the suffering. So yeah, I know a little bit about it. Welcome to Men This Way, the podcast for every man who seeks to live his deepest purpose in life, who's committed to showing up fully and giving his unique gifts to the world. Because if not you, then who? I'm your host and fellow journeyman, Brian Reeves. Brian with a Y, Reeves. Men, this way. Are you still attracted to others when you're in a relationship? Do you think non-monogamy might be easier? or more fulfilling, or just more natural? Are you being honest with your partner or yourself about your deepest sexual desires? And should you be? Well, in this episode, my guest is the brilliant Robert Kendall. He and I mine these questions and so much more for useful insights to make a meaningful difference in your life, and particularly your love life. This is an epic episode. I love Robert. Robert is a wise man, and he is also a dear friend of mine. And Robert is especially wise in the domain of intimacy and relationship because he's been through it all. He's given himself to monogamy, polyamory, swinging, sex clubs, threesomes, foursomes, straightsomes, bisomes, the whole orgy lifestyle, whatever the hell that is. But perhaps most interestingly, at least to me, is that he was the business brains behind the ascent of One Taste. One Taste is a multi-million dollar international organization, surely the world's largest, if not, and probably the world's only organization that espouses the female orgasm as a gateway to humankind's conscious awakening. Yes, you heard me right. The female orgasm as a gateway to humanity's awakening. And we'll talk more about that. And Robert might say it or see it differently, but that was my interpretation when I first discovered One Taste and what they were up to in California, of course. And both Robert and I share some fascinating stories about our own experiences with One Taste and its core practice called orgasmic meditation, which, by the way, is a practice I recommend couples learn about. I do not endorse participating in the One Taste community. I want to be really clear about that, and I'll actually share why in this conversation with Robert. But I do recommend the practice 
for couples who want to create more sensual connection and intimacy. And we'll get to that. Anyway, Robert has immersed himself for many years in the world of sexual exploration. And there he's met every beast that lives in every human shadow. Jealousy, rage, insecurity, self-doubt, shame. Which is one of the things that I love most about being around Robert. Because of his willingness to confront these demons, he's become a man whose presence exudes clarity, confidence, calm, and deep, genuine caring. You really feel that he's not hiding anything from you, and also that he doesn't need anything from you, not even validation. And you really do get that he still cares about you. He's a fascinating man. I love Robert. Robert just came out with a new book appropriately titled Unhidden, a book for men and those confused by them. And in his lifetime of being a badass business leader and coach, he has taught over 10,000 students in 400 workshops, coaching sessions, and lectures how to live an authentic, unhidden life. In this episode, Robert and I have a spirited conversation on the question of monogamy. Is it natural? We talk jealousy and how it can be your best friend. We also talk about the challenges inherent in any form of relationship that you could possibly explore and really so much more. By the way, a little preview, a little foreshadowing, Robert is actually now chosen to be in a monogamous relationship, though probably not in the way that you might think, but I'll let him explain. This is a must-listen episode for every man and woman who's ever been challenged by monogamy or just by sexuality, which is most everyone. So definitely stay tuned all the way through till Robert's five key takeaways at the end of this episode of Men This Way. And if you want to share feedback or tell me what this conversation inspired you, please email me directly at brian, brian with a Y, at brianreeves.com. I'd really love to hear your thoughts. All right, let's dive. Robert Candell. Hi. Welcome. Brian Reeves. My brother. It's good to have you on Men This Way. It's Finally. truly an honor. It's truly an honor. I told you that I had FOMO. All these other fellas were on the show flirting with you, and I, I felt FOMO. Well, my friend, when I conceived this idea, I knew you were very much on my radar of, of one of the men that I wanted to feature, because you've, you've been through some stuff. Been through the wars. No question <laughs> about that. But before we get to that, I want to just acknowledge you just came out with a book. How's that yes. coming, man? Slow and steady, yeah. probably the best way to say it. And it, my life is so full, and it's it's like if it was just the book alone, that would be epic. But it's the it's the book, it's my CFO clients, it's my yeah. my life coaching clients, it's my own podcast, and so it is a slow and steady experience. And writing the book, I highly recommend for anyone who really wants to torture themselves. Um, uh, but really, an epic experience. Which we men, we do. We we all want to torture ourselves. We do. To some we do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No pain, no gain. That's the idea, anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Jean von Klandam, no retreat, no surrender. Yeah. Sort of and, thing. And and all of that on top. So the book is called Unhidden. Yes. What's the tagline? It's called Unhidden: A Book for Men and Those Confused by Them. And those confused by them. Yes. Right. And I got a chance to look at it before it, it went out. And mm-hmm. uh, boy, it says just about everything one needs to know about communicating, particularly in intimacy. So, yes, that was a concept. Yeah. But I know that that launch was exhausting for you. That my, my book launch was ridiculous. Yeah. I don't highly recommend the 12-hour live book launch. I do recommend writing a book. I do mm-hmm. not necessarily recommend a 12-hour one, though. So that was, that was a bit much. 
Yeah, I remember I, you had me on. I was one of your guests towards the end of the day, and and I could kind of feel the fuck this going on in your. <laughs> yeah, it actually kind of happened about the third hour, and I think you were like seven, <laughs> eight, or nine. I was just oh, like, was and you just took it. over. Like, I'm going to interview you with the silliest interview known to man. So yeah, it was, it was totally perfect. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, man, it's good to have you on Men This Way. And I'm really excited for our conversation today because I, I get this question a lot or I hear this a lot in my men's groups and in working with men and just my friends, hmm. even men that are in you know, the relationships that they want, the relationship that they've waited for, hmm. that they pined for, that you know, the, with the woman that just, there's no better woman, it, but yet... You still hear that <laughs> common lament, man, monogamy, it ain't natural. Right. So I'm really excited to have this conversation with you today. But before we, before we dive headlong into that specific thing, mm. I'd like to just familiarize my listeners, a lot of men, a lot of women listening too, with mm. though your experience, you know, I know you were on a kind of the classic traditional path of maledom. Mm-hmm. And why don't you kind of lay that out for us? I mean, where you started and then something happened. Right. Um, so I have, the way I tell my story is that I was normal till I was around 28. And when I be my normal was I followed my father's path, my customs. You know, I was born a firstborn Jew, a firstborn male Jew in New York. So I had all this kind of very direct, you know, earn double before you spend and make sure there's savings and there's worry about your future and take about your economics. And your purpose in life is to produce progeny, male progeny, mostly to continue the family name and make sure that you're thinking about your 401k. And Mm. I was doing it at 28. I had a five bedroom house in San Francisco. I had a corporate job. I was pulling in six figures. I was married. I did marry an Irish Catholic which uh, Mm. I think was okay, but not thrilling. They really wanted a Jew. a little little bit of rebellion. A little bit of rebellion, yeah. Yeah. Uh, And I had the whole thing. You know, we had the five-bedroom house for the kids, for the grandchildren, and everything was fine. And on the flip side, there were some challenges that I think are quite common. I was a workaholic. I was overweight. I was not having sex with my wife. I was a, a stranger to my wife. Like, she was... We had like two passing in the night kind of thing. And also I had this really deep secret life, especially around my desire and my sexuality that no one knew about. Uh, Back when I was 28, 1998, there were these news groups around porn. There wasn't video, you know, pictures were hard to get and porn sites you had to pay for, but there were these news groups and there was one alt.sex.stories that I like read these rich fantasy and masturbate and like live in the fantasy of a rich wildlife while wearing the mask of a very normal person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so you're in your, your mid twenties at this time, mid to late twenties. Right. Then Carol, my first wife, the white rabbit of my entire life that I followed down the rabbit hole mm. said, Hey, do you want to go to Burning Man? Mm. Now, Burning Man, for those who don't know, are this big festival in the desert, uh, started in the mid-90s. You know, now it's like 75,000 people. It's massive. And massive. When, when you went at that time, how big was it? 18,000. It was 100 bucks yeah. for a ticket or not, wow. like 70, 80 bucks for a ticket. I mean, only 18,000. Um, the first time I went, it was in 2010. Mm-hmm. And there were, it was 50,000 right. people at that time. I, I mean, it's, it's gotten much bigger, but I can't imagine 18,000. Yes. That's incredible. What a sounds so just positively intimate given where it's at now. Indeed, totally. 
so, you know, the only information I had about Burning Man, because it really wasn't up on the web, was this picture book that my wife's friend had. And it showed a previous year of Burning Man. And there were like naked people walking around, which was interesting. And then there were naked people, there was like a mud bath or something. So these naked people walking around naked in the desert encrusted with mud. And I was like, that is not the place I want to be. This yuppie <laughs> does not want to walk around beer yeah. in the mud with, you know, mud in very personal places. Yeah. But I was, she asked, like, can we go to Bernie Man? And I was just like, mm. she's like, come on. I'm like, okay, I'll go. Follow the white rabbit. Follow the white rabbit. Mm. So, you know, two months later, six weeks later, driving to Bernie Man, like, what did I get myself into? And then we drive up and we go through the gate and you land and I got out of the car and there was like this breeze off the desert. There was the techno music in the distance. There was drumming yeah. nearby and the words were your home Yeah, popped in my head. Now they say it when you get yeah. to the gate. But mm. to me, yeah. no one said it to me. I just popped my head your home. I'm like, what? This mm. yuppie, wow. this doesn't. No, this doesn't. So, but what happened is I really found peace there. I found this whole other part of my brain. And the big epic thing that happened to me was on the second or third night, Carol said to me, uh, I heard there's this camp that does orgies called Delilah's, Delilah's Den. Do you want to go? And I was like, uh, hmm, orgies. Well, I've heard of those, <laughs> and I think that would be quite interesting because uh, I think it would be a unique scientific experience. I mean, really, it was nerdy. But inside, I was like, ah, you know, orgies, like all those stories, ah. Of course, yeah. <laughs> and I was like, okay, we'll go. They're like, we'll go. So all day I'm thinking, orgy, uh -huh. like, is Carol going to make out with another guy? Am I going to make another woman? Or yeah. is she going to make another woman? Like, what's yeah. going to happen? Ah! Yeah. And then like 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, we jump on our bikes. We ride across the playa. We end up at Delilah's. I'm like, my whole body is shaking. And we walk up to the, the flap and open up the tent. And we walk in and there's 300 guys and two women, oh, Carol God. and me. <laughs> And look, I think before we move on, I think it's really important to emphasize that so many things sound good in theory. Mm -hmm. And but then when we're actually presented with them, boy, a lot of shit comes up. Yeah. And maybe we'll get into that when we really dive into the question of monogamy, because it's the same thing. But I think it's just important to notice that. Indeed. Totally. So I was crestfallen. We were walking around. Carol became very popular all of a sudden. I wasn't even noticed. Mm -hmm. And we stayed for like 15 minutes, <laughs> fried our grilled cheese and left. And um, they did like grilled cheese. That was a big thing. Grilled okay. cheese and orgies yeah. was at Delilah's. So, but the interesting happened after we left the tent is we walked around the playa for, you know, all night, three, four, five hours and started to have our first honest conversation around sexuality. It was the first time I'd ever let anyone through the curtain into my soul about this really rich, deep, secret life. I was 28 years old. Not my guy friends, not my past girlfriends. No one knew because I was so afraid of being rejected. I was so afraid mm -hmm. of being judged. So we started talking about our sex life. And I said to her, like, I don't think you're the last woman I want to kiss in this life. And she's like, you're not the last guy I want to kiss in my life. And I was like, what? And all of a sudden, we started to have a dialogue. Mm. around our desires. And all of a sudden, like one truth began another truth and another truth became another truth. And it was the most epic conversation I've ever had because it was the first time of living really unhidden, exposed, vulnerable, mm. truthful. And so we decided to come back to San Francisco and start our journey, which mm -hmm. led to many wondrous places. Yeah. And so we'll fast forward a little bit because yep. uh, I know I want to just share with our listeners your experience with One Taste. Okay. Yeah, I'd like to d just dive into that because that's how I 
I think that's probably, that was one of my big, like I didn't have that experience at Burning Man. I've been to Burning Man three times, but that wasn't a sexual revolution for me. That was Mm. happening actually outside of Burning Man for me. But One Taste, I had an experience with One Taste. Anyway, so take us into that. So it was uh, San Francisco in the late 90s, uh, workshops, the rave culture, ecstasy, exploring, sex clubs, do not recommend sex clubs, mm. just like going from place to place. And then I met this woman, Nicole Daydon, in December of 1999. And to make the story very quick, we decided to open up One Taste, which we did in June or July of 2004. And I started One Taste uh, with her with this paper napkin sketch I sold that house in San Francisco, took my portion, Mm. started it up, and then went on a 10-year journey around sexuality. Journey for the business, building it from a paper napkin sketch to an eight-figure international business, but also my personal journey, like living in a warehouse, a sexual research warehouse, Mm -hmm. having my sexuality, jealousy, envy, non-monogamy, threesomes, foursomes, moresomes, like the most epic adventures uh, in my life in that 10-year period. Well, and so One Taste, I discovered One Taste. It was already a functioning company and, and I was at a networking event in Los Angeles. And one of the things that we had to do or we were invited to do was to kind of put on our name tag I can't remember exactly what the instruction was, but it was something like, you know, what's your your joy or your vision for the world? Don't put your name on your name tag. Put some kind of descriptive mm. vision about your work or your love, whatever. And I remember seeing a few people there. They had on their name tag, I think it was orgasmic meditation yeah. or women's orgasm, you know, yeah. saving the world through women's orgasm or something. And naturally, that was immediately interesting and intriguing right. to me. What is that? And that's when, you know, they were, these were people that were in the One Taste organization. And so real quickly describe for us, what is the core practice and philosophy of One Taste? One Taste evolved over, you know, 10 years is still in play. It's mostly online at the moment. But the concept was that there's all these places for mental health, physical health, spiritual health, but there's no places for sexual health or sexuality or communication around sexuality. So uh, one of our original places, we wanted to create a clean, well-lit place to talk about your sex, to have your body be a pleasurable place to be. And the core of it was something called orgasmic meditation, which is a 15-minute partnered practice between two people. One person puts, takes the most dexterous part of their body, the index finger, and puts on the most sensitive part of a woman's body, the upper left-hand quadrant of her clitoris, and strokes for 15 minutes, up, down, up, down, no goal, no commerce, just to have your body feel as most powerful, both people, not just the strokee, but the stroker as well, to feel the most sensation in your body. Yeah. And I remember when I went to a workshop with Nicole that she was leading mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. in L.A., it was, again, this was when I was going through kind of my, my own sexual revolution, if you will, mm. or my own awakening, you know, confronting my shame, mm. specifically my sexual shame. And mm. I remember taking, I was supposed to bring a nest, mm-hmm. you know, the man bringing a nest. I was, I thought of myself like a, like a, like an adolescent pelican, mm. <laughs> adolescent <laughs> pelicans, yeah. Yeah. you know, they put sticks in their mouth to show the females that they're ready to settle down and let's right. have babies. And I remember bringing my nest, you know, I had a big laundry bag full of pillows and, and a blanket or something. And it's my nest and I'm bringing it to this hotel in, in Santa Monica. And mm-hmm. I feel so 
self-conscious. I mm-hmm. feel like all of my, again, all of my stuff, dirty boy stuff, mm-hmm. you know, you just want to get in girls' pants. Mm-hmm. All of that started coming up, so to speak, in, in my body and my, my, my thoughts. And, but it was so enlivening to confront mm-hmm. that and lean into that and show up. Because I, I was single. I, was, I wasn't going with a partner. I was going to practice with a woman I'd never met before. Mm-hmm. I was going to meet in this workshop. So mm-hmm. anyway, so I had that experience and I practiced that orgasmic meditation with a woman that I'd met at that workshop. In fact, I asked the woman that I was most intimidated by, of mm. course, to be my partner. So I really mm. wanted to lean into all my stuff. And I'll say this, you probably can't or don't want, or maybe don't even think this, but I didn't continue with one taste because there was something in the community aspect of it that to mm-hmm. me just felt off. Mm-hmm. And so I, I just say that for our listeners, because I, I, I'm not, this isn't a promo for one taste. Mm-hmm. I think the mission of the, the experience that, that orgasmic meditation is incredible. And it's just my opinion. I think it's an incredible practice, but I knew it was something that I wanted to do only with a partner mm-hmm. and not with multiple partners, you know, kind of in a community mm-hmm. setting. Anything you want to add to that or offer to that? I, I love that. You know, I love choice and it, it was an intense can I swear? Absolutely. Fuck, it was fuck. an intense fucking game. Like one taste. And then at the peak of it, we were we were creating a lot of energy. We were playing some heavy ass games. And there were some negative ramifications of it. And at the same time, you know, we trusted people to make those decisions for themselves. Mm-hmm. And so from my point of view, my personal point of view was like, I wanted people to have choice. I wanted to bring the technology mm-hmm. that changed my life. Like orgasmic meditation changed my life. The yeah. 11,000 ohms I did in my 10 or 12 year career changed my perception of touch. Oh, ohm stands for orgasmic meditation. Yes. Just a 15 minute practice. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it changed my life. It taught me how to feel. It taught me how to hear. It taught me how to touch, ask questions. It got me through my shame. It got, it's like, whoo. Yeah. And if someone wanted to do that in a circle with, you know, the max we ever did was like 500 people at a conference owning at once. Or you want to do that in the privacy of your own home. I'm a yeah. strong believer of choice. Yeah. It'll probably lead into the monogamy, non-monogamy conversation at the same time. Yeah, I think it does. Yeah, I, I did that practice. I think there were maybe, I don't know, 30 people in the room. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm essentially touching a woman's clitoris that I had just met, mm-hmm. you know, on the floor. And, and again, it's a very boundaried practice. It's a yes. very, you know, for our listeners, it's done. And at least when, you know, in the workshop and that sort of the formal practice is it's incredibly boundaried. It's done in a way so as to make the woman feel safe. Right. I think that's very important. And I had, it was very, it was a very transcendent spiritual, it was a meditation for me. Mm-hmm. It was incredibly, you know, to force my, no, force, that's not the right word, but to discipline my attention, let's say, mm-hmm. to be attuned to the person I'm, I was working with was profound mm. in that space. So, but choice. Okay, good. So let's pivot from here because again, your experience, Robert, you were saying a few moments ago, you went everywhere. You everywhere. Twosomes, threesomes, foursomes, moresomes. Mm. I mean, what didn't you do in the sexual domain? That might be an easier question to answer. Is there something that you never experienced? That- I didn't have full on sex with a man. So I, I played with bisexuality and mm-hmm. touching and kissing and oral experiences. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously, you know, no animals, um, no, you know, obviously no children, mm-hmm. um, you know, but really, you know, I, and I didn't go hardcore into the BDSM, though I did get flogged and had some experiences being mm-hmm. tied up and being dominated 
So I had, you know, so there's the acts, right? But there was really the internal, the internal, like, you know, the heaviest thing I probably did that was challenging was to face my judgments and value judgments about particular type of women that I deemed unattractive. Mm. Because when I walked in the door, I had a very, I had a type, Mm-hmm. You know, I had a type. Yeah. You know, they were they were like five foot three, curly hair, neurotic, thin, <laughs> yeah. rail thin, yeah. Yeah. and bossy. You know, it's like I, it's what I liked. <laughs> and then I was thrown into this sexual uh, research for me for ten years. I had all different colors, all different body shapes, all different energies, all different smells. Like I was a research mm-hmm. partner with a woman whose smell I did not like mm-hmm. from the beginning, and had had to, had the opportunity to confront that, my judgments. And so uh, it was, it just, it's an, it was an amazing ride. And jealousy. I mean, you oh. went into this with your wife. Yes. You this whole experience with your wife. Yes. So jealousy, I mean, just bring us into that experience for a moment. I have a PhD in jealousy. I will say that. When I started 2004, I was really, when I started my, my real practice around 2001, we got hooked up with this group called the Welcome Consensus. And so they were kind of, for me, one of our um, significant contributors to One Taste. Nicole was this amazing researcher. So she pulled from Welcome Consensus and more, but also Buddhism, yoga, Kabbalah, a whole bunch of spectrum. So Carol and I walked in into the Welcome Consensus and they were hardcore player. There was like violence. There was like there was a domination and the guy in charge, this guy, RJ was a straight lace killer. And if he saw any weakness in with you, he put his fingers in there and he pried it and poked mm. and touched it. I'd be like bleeding. And he'd be like putting his hands in there like, mm. and Carol fell in love with him. Mm. And he was inviting her into a closer circle with him and his five girlfriends. Wow. And I was this newbie off the boat, mm. this newbie off the bus with mm. his wife who he thought was better than, who had chauvinistic, misogynistic viewpoints about. I thought I was, I was the man, I was blah, 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 mm-hmm. to have all these things confronted by her falling. And so like, like jealousy, burning, dying, middle of the night, you know, walking for five hours you know, in the San Francisco fog on the Great mm-hmm. Highway, you know, suicidal thoughts, you know, the wow. bus coming towards me, my scooter and doing the math of what it would take to <laughs> veer my scooter in front of that bus <laughs> to get to that bus to end the suffering. Uh-huh. So yeah, I know a little wow. bit about it. Wow. And how did that then unfold over time? How did that mature? How did that, where did that go? Well, here's the thing about jealousy that a lot of people don't know. It's your best friend. Jealousy, when you get in relationship with jealousy, can be your best friend. Yeah. Because one, I learned that who I am is not dependent on others. I have a self-validating machine. Two, if I feel jealous, instead of looking at that guy is better or smarter or richer or funnier, like I'm looking at that like a warning bell to me saying, oh, there's something you want that he has a skill, a technique. Or... Like when Carol and I, we play pretty heavy in this, when she would gravitate towards other guys, to me, I'd be like, oh, I'm not paying enough attention to Carol. Mm -hmm. I'm not treating her the way she wants to be treated. So, of course, she's going to go off, 
you know, break the holy bound that she must make me the most special. She's actually saying, hey, you got to up your game if you want my attention. Mm. And it was very hard to get over my male arrogant ego, but it became my best friend. It became a notifier. So now when I feel jealous, I'm like, great, there's something I want Mm. because I've turned it into really an ally. Yeah. Okay. So great. Now the, here, here we go. This, this is the launching off point. Cause what I'm hearing in my head now is a lot of men out there and, right. and you know, in, in my own past and saying, well, see, I mean, jealousy is something that we should work with. It's a gift. So why doesn't my woman, and I'm talking in obviously a heterosexual context sure. okay. in this moment, but so therefore my woman, she should be okay that I want to be with other women or that like, is she like, that should be something that she has to just deal with. Right. This is maybe the launching off point into the question of, of monogamy. Is it, well, it's funny. Is it natural? What the hell is natural even mean? Well, it depends on your source. Let's, let's, we'll start there just because okay. that's kind of where a lot of men start. Okay. Is it so, natural? It depends on who you're talking to. If you're talking to the church, the answer is yes. <laughs> if you're talking to someone like Christopher Ryan, Sex at Dawn, the answer is no. Uh-huh. My belief is that monogamy is not the standard choice in society. If you actually look at the history of monogamy, it's relatively recent, like 1600s, 1700s, really recent. If you look at the history of marriage, like monogamy came around mostly for land ownership. Mm -hmm. That's one of the biggest motivators for monogamy is land ownership. That's the biggest, yeah. And to get kin, to get in-laws, well, to pass on the property, yeah. if your woman's having sex with someone else, and guys could have sex with other, you know, that was fine. But if your woman's having sex with someone else, you're not sure you're passing your land on to the right kid. That's right. Yeah. So my belief system, it's not a default mechanism. It's a created default in our society. And interestingly, is just looking at some research about this and and, and ask the question of your ideal relationship. One in three, one in three people mm-hmm. said uh, non-monogamy would be an ideal relationship. Mm-hmm. Now that still leaves two in three who say it is their ideal relationship. Mm-hmm. And I'll just, now full disclosure, and I think, well, it's going to just be interesting to see how this conversation unfolds for us, but I am very pro-monogamy. Okay. Not as a stand for everyone, but as what works for me. But... Come just coming back. I just want to lay the groundwork. Is it natural? Look, actually, wait, 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 wait. Can we ask you a question? Yeah, of course. Have you ever tried non-monogamy? I have. I have dated where I was sexual with multiple partners, but I wouldn't have really called that a relationship. I mean, it was a relationship, but I wasn't committed. Okay. So So my my answer to you to play a little tough love with you is you don't know what it's like. You don't actually know what non-monogamy is. That may be true. Okay. So I'm not trying to, to convince yeah. you of anything, but this is where no. most people live. Yeah. They say they're pro-monogamy because they've never actually experienced non-monogamy because of X, Y, and Z, societal pressures, jealousy, fear. Most people choose monogamy out of fear. And I'm going to tell you, non-monogamy is a pain in the ass. It is a lot of work. Well, yeah, well, that's the thing though, Robert, is that you know people who are in polyamorous relationships, people, yeah. none of us escape our discomfort. No. We face it everywhere. Yes. I think that's, that's part of the myth that I think a lot of us, and again, I'm, this is you know, an audience for men. I know a lot of women will be listening, but I think a lot, that's the myth a lot of men in particular live in is that if I just would have multiple partners, this would be so much fucking easier. No. And it's not the truth at all. No. And- 
being monogamous isn't easy. Like living isn't easy. Being in relationship, being in an honest, transparent, vulnerable, real relationship yeah. isn't easy. And so let's go down the core of it. It isn't easy because we're taught to hide. We're taught to you know, pull in and wear masks and play games and do white lies. Because if we have fear, if we truly show who we are, the other person's going to split. Monogamous, non-monogamous, binary, bleh, whatever. The point is, is that it's all hard. Now, you know, is monogamy the greatest gift for growth and expansion of relationship? Absolutely. Is non-monogamy the greatest gift for growth in relationship? Absolutely. It's just a <laughs> conscious choice yeah. to make it from a choice from desire, not fear. And I'll say one more thing before I pass it back is I am now in a monogamous relationship with my wife, my second wife, Morgan, yeah. and it is challenging, but so much growth. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's where we're ultimately going to lead is it's really just a matter of choice. It's not a question of natural. Forget the question about whether right. it's natural. What you and I are doing right now with these weird headphones on, talking into microphones over a computer, that is so uh -huh. not fucking natural. Yeah. There's nothing natural yeah. about what you and I are doing right now. We sound good. We look good. <laughs> we look good and sound good and feel good. Yeah. Yeah. Other than that, it's like, what do I do in a day that's so-called natural? If right. we're talking, you know, just, I mean, I talk on, you know, I have an iPhone. That What the hell? That's nothing. That, those don't grow on trees. It ain't you natural. Wear, you wear shoes. You don't touch the ground and you eat processed food. Exactly. The most natural thing I generally do is, is maybe eat an apple. Although even that's not, I didn't go pick it off the tree. Right. You know, it's like, what the hell do we do that's natural anymore? We drive a car. That's not, yeah. that's not natural. Yep. So just throw that question out. That's okay. not a helpful question for our listeners. I think let's explore a little bit more though, because there are some interesting things in the human body. Like I just learned in researching this, I wanted to just bone up on, so to speak, bone up on my facts and on, on, <laughs> the, on the evolution of things. And, mm. and it is, you know, there's some really fascinating phenomenon that show, that suggests the human body has really evolved in the midst of incredible promiscuity, mm. such as just yesterday, I probably learned this years ago, but I re remembered it yesterday, was the, the, the penis. The penis is shaped in such a way, the head of the penis is shaped in such a way that actually as it's going in and out of the vagina, it creates mm. suction. It creates mm. a vacuum such that in that vacuum, it will actually pull any other sperm that's already there mm. away from the egg and then, you know, after pumping a number of times and it spurts its own sperm closer to the egg. So there is a competitive, just that alone. Sure. <laughs> sure. mind blowing to me. Yeah. That's like, just that alone, like the, the human penis is shaped with the expectation that there's going to be other sperm in there before I get there. Mm. Right. I mean, there's all kinds of just phenomenological evidence that suggests mm -hmm. humans are, we, we live in a state of promiscuity. Mm. And as you said, even just a few hundred years ago was when we really began with this whole concept of love marriages. Mm -hmm. And even that is suspect because mm -hmm. even that apparently was at least one story is that it was born of the fear that, you know, as women were be starting to become more empowered, the likelihood of them not wanting to be married to a man, partnered to a man, enslaved to a man increased. Which is happening. Which part? which is happening at a statistical level is that, well, first time in the first time in American history, there are more single adults than married adults mm, mm -hmm. for the first time, 2012 uh, yeah. to, yeah. No, go ahead. Well, it's so interesting because even a few hundred years ago, that story of, 
you know, one man, one woman, you're right. incomplete without the other. And that's sort of it's almost that myth that we fell into that, that was propagated by the powers that be, by the church, for example, mm. to again, almost, um, I don't know what the right word is, but sort of coerce or trick or manipulate, especially women to buying, to continuing to buy into the mm. idea of marriage. And now what you just said is interesting because what's happening, but we're in the self-love movement. We're in the, you're already complete. You're already whole. You don't need right. anyone else to complete you movement. And so look at what we have more single people than ever before. Right. Like what's that Tom Cruise classic line, Jerry Maguire, you, you complete me. me. Yeah. I'm, you know, I just thought of an article I'm going to write. It's going to be like 10 classic codependent love movie lines reframed. Cause it's not like you completely. It's like you motivate me from stop being an asshole to being a man. Like that's really what it is. <laughs> right, yeah. It's like left our own devices. We're self-involved. We're egoic, you know, we're narcissistic, yeah. but it takes another person to be like, wow, I need to up my game. Yeah. Like what's happening in the 21st century is women are just saying, hey, you know, the scripts that your father and grandfather gave to you, the 6,000 years of patriarchy before you, not working anymore, buddy. Yeah. You got to step up. Yeah. And if you're not going to step up, hopefully she has enough self-respect to say, I'm out of here. Yeah. And we're seeing people getting married later. Divorce is actually going down, but that's because people are not getting married as much. Yeah. There's, you know, later in life, Women are not at the effect of men. They have their own bank accounts, their own brokerage accounts. They have their own jobs. They're moving into the boardroom. There's a significant statistical change, especially dominating in the schooling system. So for men this way, it's like monogamy, non-monogamy. It's all about, are you being the best man you can be to be the light for your partner, to be the best person you can be? Yeah. Like I'll, I'll throw in one little thing. Like my wife, Morgan has absolutely no rules about what she does sexually. Like none. She doesn't need to talk to me. She doesn't need to ask. You mean, you mean you've given her no rules? I haven't given her no rules. I've just said, I have no control of you. I see you as a free yeah. woman. Yeah. You know, I'm admitting <laughs> that you're a totally sovereign human being and you have total choice. Yeah. In that, she's really nice to me because she's not controlled by me. She's free She's also more of a monogamous person, but you know, she's gravitates towards me because I, I'm the first man to say, you're a free human being. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, relationship is an invitation, not an obligation. Right. And that's where people get stuck around monogamy yeah. is that we have this assumption of monogamy. Even if you haven't talked about monogamy, you can still feel betrayed. Like, what's this scenario? We went on three dates. You know, we had sex. And now he slept with someone else and he cheated on me. Mm-hmm. Well, did you ever ask if you're exclusive? Well, no, but he should just know. We had sex. We've been on three dates. There's all these rules and gyrations and concepts. Yeah. People don't talk about it. They feel betrayed. And it's the way our society is really screwed up. Yeah. You know, I wish some, um, so I'm 44. I met my fiance, Sylvie, when I was 41. And I'd had all the experiences that I'd wanted to have, more mm-hmm. or less. I mean, there's maybe a few here and there, but but I had already figured out that just having more sexual experiences or just, it's not where it's at for me anymore. Mm-hmm. And in fact, actually, you know, there's this idea in the Jewish Kabbalah that men shouldn't start studying Kabbalah until they're 40. Mm-hmm. It's not a hard and fast rule, but it's a sort of a general guideline passed down through the ages that mm-hmm. until a man is 40 and now in, in, in actual practice, it's a range. Then I think the same with relationships. It could be 28 when he's ready. It could be 58 when he's ready. Sure. It could be never, right. but there's, a level of maturity and understanding of the world 
that when he's generally turns 40, he's ready to really dive into the mysteries and the mysticism and, and of the Kabbalah, of the mm-hmm. of mystical Judaism. And I think for relationships, I wish somebody would have told me in my 20s and 30s, hey, dude, you don't have to be in a relationship. You don't have to be monogamous. You, it's okay. You can, you can be patient. You can explore. I wish someone would have told me that, Robert. No one told me that. And no one told you to be honest. No one taught me to be honest. And no, in fact, actually, I, what I got was the opposite. Don't be honest, because what happens is, well, well, you know, a friend of mine put it this way, actually. He said he realized, you know, growing up, he got the story from his parents. Tell the truth, but we won't be able to handle it. Right. And that was reinforced in me through all my relationships. Sure. I want to know the truth, and I'm not going to be able to handle it. Right. <laughs> well, well, I'll t- well, that's the reason they can't handle it is because you hide the truth. You like keep it inside and then you vomit it out. That's what people do. They don't start with an honest conversation about really who they are and what they want. We wear these masks until the third or fourth month. And then we're like, hi, surprise. You're now hooked. Yeah. You're, you're now, you know, yeah. our, our Olympic systems are now entwined. And now I'm not going to show you all my, you know, so we fool each other. We con each other into relationships, yeah. especially around sexuality. Like I would bet a thousand dollars cash on the barrel that 99% of the people on this call don't know the full extent of their sexual desires of their partners. And they know that their partners don't know the full extent of their sexual desires because they're right. We can't tell the truth because they can't handle it. So what we do is we hide and we sugarcoat and we water down and we play small and we win, 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 win. Instead of being the full authentic people who we are and let the chips fall where they may because we're so afraid of being rejected, yeah. Like living life fully who we are. That's where the best sex comes from. Yeah. I mean, I wrote a book called Tell the Truth. Let yeah. the peace fall where it may. Right. Of course, I couldn't write that book until my late 30s after mm-hmm. I'd been lying for a couple decades and seeing it blow up in my face. I mean, what, what you just described is exactly what happened to me when I was probably, I think, 30, 31. Mm-hmm. I was basically in love with two two women. I didn't plan for it, but it, it just happened that way. One happened to live in Indonesia and the mm-hmm. other happened to live in Miami. I had a jet-setting mm-hmm. lifestyle at the time. And, mm-hmm. and um, long story short, I didn't want the new one to know about the one in Indonesia, the one in Miami mm-hmm. where I was living. I didn't want her to know about that one because if she knew, I was sure she wouldn't want to be with me. And I was terrified and, and there was a little bit of overlap there and I lied about it. Mm-hmm. And four months into the new relationship, she found out Mm -hmm. and by going on my computer for something. And Mm -hmm. man, that was, that was the beginning of the most chaotic, painful, Mm -hmm. agonizing five years of my life Mm -hmm. because it was, it was a betrayal. It was betrayal enough. We'd only been together a few months like you said, Robert, it fits exactly that. I had the mask on and it wasn't until yep. four months later yep. that it even began to peek through. And uh, I mean, that was the seed. That relationship was the seed for the work I do today. It was a seed mm-hmm. for that book, Tell the Truth, Let the Peace Fall Where It May. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, now I'm, I'm in my early 40s and I've had a lot of experiences. And, you know, I realize in that experience, Robert, that it wasn't that I was with that other woman that was mm-hmm. really the fault. It was that I lied about it. Yeah. It's never the sex. It's never the sex that people feel betrayed about. It's the mask, them not trusting, just how much energy it takes to do something like that to your partner. Mm-hmm. Think about it. Like, let's call that like 
a thousand units of energy to hide your secret? What could that thousand units of energy do to, to improve your relationship? Mm-hmm. And instead, we spend so much energy wearing these masks and playing small that we're actually not living our life potential because we're spending so much time keeping ourselves down. Now, I'm not advocating you know, turning it from zero to 100 in one moment. Like I do believe in deliberate, very intelligent, very slow practices of revealing yourself. Like in the book is really there's specific things you can do to slowly open up, deliberately open up yourself to your partner. One truth begets another truth. Just like me and Carol in that playa where I was like, I want to kiss another woman. She's like, ah. And all of a sudden my whole life was created from that one Mm -hmm. moment where I had the courage to say one small thing and then it's a tennis match of honesty and vulnerability. Yeah. And I would much rather be with a partner that knows me. Like Morgan knows me. She knows every woman I'm attracted to. She sometimes knows before I do. You know, she knows every <laughs> she thought really I have. Sometimes you. I speak too much. She she really knows yeah. me. Yeah. And in that, I'm just like my whole body's like, yeah. oh, I can be myself around you and yeah. you're still here. And we still get in fights like. I was attracted to this woman a couple of weeks ago. I said it a few too many times for Morgan. Mm-hmm. She got some perturbed. But from that, we had a really deep conversation about it. Mm-hmm. So my point is, is like, I'm just a believer in showing who you are and magnetizing people to who you are rather than the mask that we yeah. all wear. And, and I'll, I'll kind of speak on, on another side of that because you know, I'm with Sylvie. And Robert, you're how old now? How many years exquisitely aged are you? I am shy of my 49th birthday, about a week. Okay. And you met Morgan when you were? 45. 45. Okay. Right. I met Sylvie when I was 41. I'm now 44. Yep. And I wasn't ready for this before. Right. Me either. Yeah, gotcha. You know... Sylvie and I, we don't share everything with each other. Mm-hmm. We, but we don't hide either at the same time. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're, we're, she knows me. I know her same. She knows the kind of woman I would be attracted to. And I know the kind of man, I think anyway, that she would be attracted to. And, and, and like, we have that level of honesty, but we also don't wear it on our sleeves. We don't put it in each other's faces. You know, we welcome some of that mystery. We welcome, I already figured out that there's no better woman out there. This is for me, just my experience. I've already Mm -hmm. figured out there's just no better. There'd be different, Mm -hmm. but there's not better. Mm -hmm. And there's no sexual or even intimate experience out there that is going to give me something that I can't experience with Sylvie. Mm. I've already figured that out for me. And I might even be wrong, but I don't, it doesn't matter. Like the point is that that yearning to experience it, I would just say is gone. Okay. And Again, I wasn't that that wasn't the case for me in my 20s and 30s. Mm-hmm. And I'm speaking this because again, I want I do want to have kind of these both perspectives present because I think there's validity. You know, Esther Perel talks about the mystery. What's mm-hmm. wrong with mystery in relationship? Mm-hmm. You know, there is a value system and I tend to hold it that we should be transparent about everything. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm kind of in your school of thought, Robert, about you know, tell the truth, let the peace fall where it may. I don't want to hide either. I grew up in a family where we were supposed to hide. We didn't talk Mm. about the Mm. things that were obvious to everyone and painful. So, you know, for Sylvie and I, our our practice is a little different. And, you know, when jealousy comes up and man, it's uncomfortable. There's a, Mm. you know, I have that experience where thinking of her with another man or her past Mm. partners is both a turn on and incredibly Mm. offensive at the same time. Ooh, offensive. That's sexy. I like that. It's like I'd like to get my fingers into that one. Would you now? <laughs> I would. Like the teacher who, when you someone's bleeding, just stick the 
I'm a little softer than RJ was, thank God. I learned my lesson. Yeah. And it's, it's, yeah, it's really uncomfortable and it's bizarre. It's like all these feelings at once. And I know surely there's, sure, there's something to explore there and to work with. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean I want her to be with another man. It doesn't mean right. I want, you know, it doesn't mean we want to be with other partners. It, so I'm kind of rambling a little bit, but I just find this interesting that as we age, and obviously nothing applies to everybody, but you and mm-hmm. I are both in our 40s and we're in these monogamous experiences. And I know you and Morgan, though, you experimented with not we being did. monogamous. We did. And how has that gone? When I first met Morgan, I was six, seven months out of one taste and I was about halfway through a year of no commitments. I had committed to no commitments. I'd gone to the Pacific Ocean, had a sacred swear with the Pacific Ocean, like, nope, I'm going to be freewheeling, wandering samurai. I'm going to be a ronin without a master. I'm going to wander and I'm going to have sexual experiences and relationships. And yes. Which, and Robert, man, I so, I want to encourage anyone listening out there to make that commitment, commit to not being committed until you meet someone who is a fucking hell yes to commit to. Yep. What a powerful stand to make that is. I I did the same before I met Sylvie. So yeah, commit to being not committed until you are such a hell yes to commit to somebody. Right. So I made a commitment in October and then Valentine's came and I asked this girl on Valentine's Day and she rejected me hard. It was just like, no, I'm busy. And I was like, (laughs) oh. But then after Valentine's Day, I was just like, huh. Maybe I want a girlfriend. Then I went to San Francisco for like 10 days of sexual debauchery. Like I did a workshop and I taught and then I had all these people I wanted, always wanted experiences with and I had like a week of just ridiculous amount of experiences. Then came home back to Los Angeles and then Morgan came over for an ohm. And we, we had this session and I was like, huh, there's something here. I felt, I felt something. She's an amazing hottie, but like amazing. And then uh, we ended the session. She was leaving. We had a little kiss. And then all of a sudden, we started dating. And right away, I like knew, oh, shit. This, mm. There's something deeper here. And so instead mm. of being masculine with my you know, committed, you know, commitment and you know, death before dishonor sort of thing, mm-hmm. I said, all right, I explored this. And then I quickly said, okay, let's have something. But in my first week with Morgan, I said, listen, I'm not a monogamous person. If you want to have monogamy, you might want to look elsewhere. I just want you to know this is not part of my practice at this point. I was actually a little more haughty, a little more arrogant than that. But it was mm-hmm. like, really, I wanted to know who you're dealing with. Mm-hmm. And she was like, okay, we'll see. And then we dated for four months and I was having my adventures and we were, we had a, a domination come over and tie her up. That was fun. And, you know, we had like experiences. And then, you know, three or four months later, she's like on her way out the door. Because the sensation for her in her unpracticed non-monogamy was too uncomfortable for her. And I said, okay, what do you want? And then she's just like, well, I want to be there if you have experience with another woman. I was like, I can do that. That mm-hmm. works. And so for, <laughs> uh-huh. for two years, you know, we experimented and played and it didn't quite click. Like sometimes she was more enthusiastic than I was. And, but what happened for me in my journey as a man is I found out that my diffuse energy was impacting my relationship with her. And so again, choice. I made the choice to make her the center and kind of block out the other women. Now, desire still rises constantly for me. Hmm. But there's just a choice of putting my attention back on her. Yeah. Until she feels enthusiastic about opening up our relationship again, which could happen in a, in a week. 
Yeah. Like she was flirting with this guy for a while. I was so excited for her. At the same time, I was like, okay, I'm going to keep my focus here. So the point is a choice by choice, conversation after conversation, learning after learning, some really challenging situations with her, but really grateful for the opportunity to choose. This is what we want in this moment. Yeah. I think we're coming to a conclusion or a wrap up. I think one of the things that I just want to acknowledge, because I I look at this question of monogamy, there's layers to it. You know, the layer of our genetics, our genes, they don't give a shit about relationships. They don't give a shit if we live another 10 minutes, as long as we copulate, get impregnate and, you know, and survive into the next generation. Mm. Our genes don't give a damn about politics or having a nice home or, or going to the spa or don't give a shit about any of that. They just want to survive into the next generation. That's Mm. our genetics. But at the level of the human experience, there's such a richness of life available to us. And Mm -hmm. we, we live longer and happier we live better. I mean, our bodies heal themselves faster when we're in connected relationships, healthy, mm-hmm. connected relationships. It doesn't mean monogamous relationships, but it does mean healthy and connected relationships. There's almost mm-hmm. nothing worse than being alone, feeling lonely. Mm-hmm. I mean, our bodies suffer mm-hmm. like viscerally, physically, especially as we age when we're alone, or perhaps even worse, when we're in an unhealthy, mm-hmm. toxic relationship characterized by fighting and discord. That's bad for us too. Mm. But our genes don't care anything about that. Mm-hmm. And so I think this question of monogamy, there's no definite answer, I think is mm-hmm. the conclusion where we've probably both already come to on our own journeys that just even through our conversation here, what would you say to that? I would say there's never an answer because everyone keeps evolving. Mm. So there's more questions. So who you are, like let's say you get married at 30. Two people getting married, they're both 30. By 35, they're biologically whole new people. We regenerate our whole bodies and the growth potential. And what we do is we say they feel betrayed that people morph and change and evolve Mm. in those five years. So the answer is there's no answer because the journey doesn't end. Yeah. And if you look at several lifetimes, you know, however you look at it, but the point is, is like, keep asking questions, keep opening up the space for conversations, yeah. keep asking, you know, you, you call this person, your life partner, your best friend, and you don't know that person. So ask yeah. really curious questions. And again, make it safe for them to make it a place where the truth can be told and rewarded. You don't ever have to do anything in the physical realm. Sometimes actually talking about it is a lot more fun than actually doing it. My point is, is that create a space for the truth to be told and rewarded. So then both people feel free, transparent and unhidden. So you can actually know each other. Yeah, I think that's beautiful. So you're actually living with someone and not just living around somebody. Yes, love that. Yeah, I think that's beautiful. And it does change. I know, you know, here I am in my 40s. I'm watching my, even my buying behavior. Mm. You know, what I'm doing for Sylvie and I, certain things that I'm buying, bringing into the home. Like I bought baskets the other day. I bought fucking Mm. baskets, you know, like a bread basket. Yeah, (laughs) I bought a basket for towels in the bathroom. You know, a few years back, that would have been oh my, baskets. Who the fuck needs baskets? I mean, I'm a man. I'm on an adventure. I have a mission. I'm yeah, off that's the world. baggage, man. That's going to slow you down. But we're nesting. We're right. nesting. We're in nesting mode. That's what's mm-hmm. happening. I'm building our nest. I mean, a nest for a family. Mm-hmm. And in that space, you know, the, the conversation that Sylvie and I can have, like just timing wise, or, or we're, we're on the same page. And that wasn't the case 10 years ago in my relationships. Mm-hmm. And had I been able to be honest about that with myself first, mm-hmm. yep. 
oh, so much suffering would have been averted. Mm -hmm. And God only knows what amazing experiences would have been had. Yep. And all those experiences happened. So you could learn to have this relationship you're in. Oh, man. Absolutely. Yeah. Robert, we're actually going to finish with the five key takeaways finale. Okay. All right. But I want to just, before we dive into that, you know, I want to just thank you for having this conversation with me and, you know, for being so unhidden in your own experience. And, and I, I hope that for the men and the women listening, that this has been very enlightening. And I so love that question, is monogamy natural? Because it's yeah. just the right question, really. It's, it's just a safety thing. It's, it's a starting point. It's, mental master, it's a mental masturbation to have you avoid <laughs> what's yeah. really going on. So let's finish with the five key takeaways finale okay. for this. And number one, key insight. What's the one key insight that you would offer listeners that you believe can make a meaningful impact on their lives because it has in yours? Create a practice of speaking the truth, like you said, to yourself first, and then start deliberately with your partners, your intimate friends. Let's even call it that. Start with your intimate friends to reveal who you are. Yeah, beautiful. Thank you. Number two, key mentor. Name another man that you've been inspired by, living or dead, that you would recommend our men or women listening to learn more about. So many great men out there. The one I'm a little obsessed with at the moment is a guy named Terry Real, Terrence Real. Oh, yeah. I love Terry um, And he wrote a book, I Don't Want to Talk About It. He's actually coming on my show. I'm so excited. I got hooked great. up with him. Yeah. So... um yeah, I rec highly recommend that book from the 90s because it answers a lot of questions in present day well. Yeah, Terry Real. I uh, love his work. Yeah, I know I have envy of your podcast. I've Good. podcast envy. Good, Good. <laughs> uh, key resource, your most impactful, inspiring book, movie, or podcast of the last year. Um, I think The Truth whose name just popped out of my head. Neil Strauss. Neil Strauss. Holy cow. It popped yeah. out of my head. Heavy. An uncomfortable book about relationships. An un- uncomfortable Ooh. book about relationships. Is that it? Yeah. yeah. Neil Strauss wrote Fantastic the game. Fantastic book. Yeah. Which talked about the pickup scene in the 90s. And then he talked about the impact in the truth. And he's it's just, boy, that was a yeah. huge model for me in my book of just the way he wrote that. And the way he lives unhidden, it was extraordinary. You know, I actually, when I read his book, The Truth, I actually found it so helpful because in many ways he did a lot of those things that, you know, tried to live in a pod. He got a home in, I don't know, Malibu, I think, and invited three women to come live with him. He's like, okay, here, I'm going to do it. I'm going to rock out on this. And I remember one of my favorite stories is the first night he has these three women he's totally, you know, sexually attracted to. And none of these women really knew each other, but they've all agreed to come in and be a part of his experience. And he's like, man, you know, childhood dream, here we go. And the first night he sleeps on the couch yes, because he doesn't know how <laughs> to make the choice without someone being angry or feeling left out. So he ends up sleeping on the couch. Yep. It's just a hilarious look into the mundane realities of the fantasies that mm. we live in. So yeah, it's a great book. Yeah, a fantastic book. And by the way, all of this, if you're driving or running or you're at the gym, all of this is going to be in the show notes at brianreeves.com slash men this way podcast. So you don't have to write this down. It's Brian Reeves, Brian with a Y Reeves.com slash men this way podcast. It'll all be there. All right, Robert, two more. Number four, key investment in the last year. What's the best thing that you spent money on under $10,000? Personal trainer. Personal 24 hour fitness. Guy named Eric in Woodland Hills, I recommend. But get a good trainer. 
How often do you work with the trainer? Twice a week Twice with a him. Week. Okay. It, it is totally altered, not just my body, but I've learned from him. Uh, he did this great quote the other day off the cuff that I, and now it's part of my coaching practice. He said, stop thinking about the end of the exercise, focus on the rep. Because I was just like, I can't wait to get done with this mm-hmm. exercise. It's killing me. And so um, mm-hmm. really it's, you know, my physical body and my relationship with my body is really important to me and my mm-hmm. own self-esteem. Mm-hmm. So investing that, you know, 60 bucks an hour with him, mm-hmm. life changer. One hour, twice a week? One hour, twice a week. And then I yeah. work out by myself. Okay. Yeah. Sylvie and I were talking about working with a personal trainer. I've never really been into that, but I've been thinking, man, it's probably a good idea. It's awesome. Okay. Highly, highly, highly recommend it. Okay. Good. Thank you. And finally, key practice. Please offer one consistent practice, spiritual, creative, personal, or relational that has served you well and that you challenge our listeners to take on for the next seven days. I would say create, um, we created a game, Morgan and I, called Truth Moment. And what it is, it's a deliberate practice of sharing a truth. You actually can say truth moment, truth moment, you know, hashtag truth moment. Mm. And then the person can say yes or no. If they say yes, then you deliver a truth. And then the person receives it and is not allowed to talk about it for 30 minutes. Oh, wow. Interesting. So it's a moment of just revealing something. After 30 minutes, you can have a dialogue. So it doesn't turn into this back and forth, but just reveal truth moment, a moment about yourself. And I have a podcast on it if you want more details around it. That, and that 30 minutes, I get that's really key because it, it takes away the knee-jerk reaction that often right. uncomfortable and, and also the permission getting. Is it yes right. or no? Right. Because sometimes you, you're not available for the truth. You know, the kids are screaming, you're tired, you have something on your mind. So it's truth moment. Other partner says, yes, deliver the truth. And then they say, thank you. And there's no more dialogue for 30 minutes. Well, can you just give an example of what, what might be delivered in a truth moment? And there's a million examples, but just, just for the sake of our listeners who don't, haven't, don't, haven't had a lot of truth moments. <laughs> I'll give you a really benign one that rocked me. Yeah. Morgan, truth moment? And I'm like, yes. When you take the dishes out of the dishwasher, and you take the utensils, make sure they're clean before you put them into the drawer because you're awful at it. <laughs> and I was like, thank you. Wow. And okay. the reason was because I wasn't paying attention because I'm doing 17 things at once. And mm-hmm. she was worried about the health of the kids because sometimes dishwasher doesn't work. And it was such, she was so nervous about saying it because of my male pride and how other men reacted. And, you know, my, my ego got a little hit there. I'm like, oh, I want to be the best spoon cleaner ever. <laughs> but it changed one. It just changed the way I handle the detail of, you know, cleaning and I continue to work on my dishwashing skills. But two, it's like, wow she can tell me anything on everything. And it was significant for her. It was significant for me because that's the kind of relationship I want to have. Well, I can see again how that 30 minutes is so critical because presented with that, it can sound very much like a criticism. Right. It feels like criticism. You're doing it wrong. You need to do it different. Right. And immediately, you know, and this happens for me all the time too. I don't want to be criticized. I, right. I think I do everything great. Yeah. And the knee-jerk reaction is, what are you talking about? I, I right. clean them just fine. They're fine. Oh, they're fine. Look, they're, they're, right. they're clean enough. You're crazy. You're, you know, that's what men do to women. You're crazy. Are you on your cycle? Like, you know, yeah. No. Yeah. Truth yeah. moment. So that, but at 30 minutes, thank you. Take it in. Oh, oh that's really powerful, man. That's a great practice. Thank I love you. that. Thank you. Robert, where can our listeners learn more about you and what you're up to? All things can be found on my website, robertcandell.com, K-A-N-D-E-L-L. 
Amazon.com. Uh, you can get access to the book on Amazon, my social media, my podcast, writing, other fun stuff can be found at robertcandell.com. Robert, my friend, it has been such an honor to have this conversation with you. I have great admiration and respect for you. Thank you so much Likewise. for coming on for Thank you, brother. this way. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you again to my good friend, Robert Candell. Find Robert at robertcandell.com. It's Robert Candell with two L's at the end, dot com. And of course, all links and resources and Robert's five key takeaways will be in the show notes at brianreeves.com slash podcast. If you were served by this and think someone else should hear it too, please share it with them. And please write a review on your favorite podcast app because your words truly do make a difference whether others will choose to listen. And I really appreciate it. And don't forget to subscribe yourself while you're at it. I'm your thriving life and relationship coach, Brian Reeves, Brian with a Y Reeves. Until soon, keep your head up, your breath relaxed, and your thoughts inspired. <laughs>